Good morning, Neighborhood Bible Church. Good to see you guys. Man, that song, um, Show Us Who You Are, we intentionally just put that right before the, the time in the Word today. Um, because, you know, this whole series we've been looking at in the Gospel of John is this idea of God revealing Himself to us. And I'm just struck each week that really all that we know of God um, is is what he has revealed himself to be. And, uh, and, and so as we look in the scriptures and as we pray and as we seek to follow, um, we can do so as, as Christians because God has chosen to reveal himself. And had he not done that, we would be in the dark today. We would be sitting here speculating and we would be going through religious ritual to try and find this being that is bigger than ourselves. And we know that to be true. God's hardwired that into us. And for many in this room, perhaps even most in this room, he's opened our eyes and he's given us eyes of faith and he's allowed us to see him in ways and, and, and in circumstances and in creation and in the specific revelation of his word and the, his son, Jesus Christ. I start this way because um, part of what we didn't get to last Sunday was the triumphal entry. We looked pretty heavily at, at Mary and her anointing of Jesus and just all that was going on with that. But tacked on to part of John chapter 12 here that we didn't really touch on, and we're not going to dive into this morning, but is this triumphal entry. And the triumphal entry is when Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem, right? And he's coming in and um, and all four Gospels record this event, just showing us how important it is. And there's these, these multitudes there who are just super excited, and they start to wave palm branches. And Palm Sunday is coming up in just a couple of weeks. And I tend to think of Palm Sunday as, you know, um, just an exciting time. It's approaching Easter. And a lot of churches um, recreate the story of, of Palm Sunday when Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem and all of that adoration and all of that celebration and even recreating that story is all appropriate. Jesus is the king, and it's a, it's a good thing to do. It's a right thing to do. But what's kind of fascinating about that is that really there's a darker side to Palm Sunday, isn't there? Um, because if we were to really reenact it, I mean, the, the same people that are cheering Jesus on. Uh, at the church I grew up in, we had a big pageant, and there was... You know, there was a real donkey, for instance. And so as a kid, I mean, that was one of the highlights of the year, you know, is that a donkey was in church. That was just the coolest thing ever. And Jesus would come in, and, and then you start being a stagehand or something. And I remember being a stagehand, and, you know, the donkey doesn't act the right way every, every performance, right? So when there's like, I don't know, 11 performances, there's good chance the donkey's going to go haywire once in a while. But that whole scene... Just taken in itself looks like a big cheerful thing, like, wow, here was Jesus' crowning moment. But what's the darker side of that? The, the darker side is that in, in less than a week, many of these same people, probably most of these same people, are chanting, crucify him. And they're, and they're committing this, this heinous crime. I mean, you want to talk about crimes against humanity. In essence, they're, they're a part of this, of this larger story. So as we think about this, even the fact that even the fact that this all went on is, is in our heads and is in our idea scope because it's been revealed to us. And, and we're even told from the Gospels what's happening as he goes into the city. Here's the warning that I see for us today. 
in church today is this. I think that we are as prone as any generation has ever been prone to do, and that is to worship a false Jesus. It's to worship a Jesus that, that we come up with in our own heads. You know what the people were cheering about? They were cheering about a Savior who would immediately rescue them from oppression. The Jewish people were an owned people. They weren't in control of their own land. They weren't in control of their own destiny. And they read the scriptures through lenses of their current context saying, free us from the hands of these Romans. And so as they cheered Jesus on, part of what they were cheering was immediate comfort, political position, potentially financial improvement to their situation. And when that didn't occur as planned, man, it just flipped a switch in them. And Jesus was almost like a traitor now. And here's the danger for us, is that you and I would worship a Jesus that does not exist. And that when you and I come across a portion of Scripture and Jesus is saying something we just don't like, or is really hard to understand, or doesn't fit in with our current model of who Jesus is, and who we're following and patterning our life after, we have a choice right then and there to say, that's uncomfortable, I'm going to close the book and set it aside and keep my Jesus. Or we have the opportunity right then and there to repent and say, God, I need illumination. I need light to find out who you are because this doesn't fit in with the Jesus I was raised up with. This doesn't fit in with the Jesus I always thought existed. That seems like a really hard saying. What do I do with that? And I would pray that we as a community here on Sunday mornings, but also in our community groups, that as we navigate this, as we dive in, that this would be our prayer. Lord, show us who you are. I hope it strikes you as we're standing here worshiping, that we're worshiping a being who 24 hours a day is surrounded by angelic beings that are just crying out praise songs and words of adoration to Jesus. I hope that's the image and the, and the picture in your mind and that Jesus isn't someone that fits kind of neatly on the shelf six days a week and gets pulled out when we need a fix. So the warning that I would just say as we march forward here is let's not be the crowd. Let's not get our preconceived picture of what Jesus is to me and my situation and my family and getting justice for all the wrong that's happened to me. Let's kind of blow the lid off of all of that and say, God, we want to see you for who you are, even if it rubs up against us. And help us to change and acclimate and submit to who it is you are and not who we want you to be. I want to say a word of prayer right now and then we'll, we'll dive into the rest of John 20 or John 12. <clears throat> Father, we just, um, we come to you this morning and needy people. I heard it in our singing, God, that the reality that there's room for us at the cross is great news this morning. The knowledge, God, that our burdens are rolled away because of the victory of the cross is great news. Lord, forgive us from ever gathering and neglecting the cross, neglecting what went on at the cross and resurrection. And Father, as we look this morning at a passage that uniquely points to these circumstances, would you lift our eyes, lift our gaze from our current setting Lift our focus, God, from our worries and troubles that affect us this week or this month or this year and help us to lift our gaze to heaven and think eternally 
God, I pray that you would illuminate our eyes. We are, we are helpless to discover on our own who you are unless you reveal yourself to us. And God, we praise you for creation. We praise you for the word of God. We praise you for your son, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that right now you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that would yield to who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to open up your, uh, your bulletin here this morning. And, um, and in, in the inside is a little section to take notes. And I'm just going to spill the beans right off the top here and let you know what the big idea for this morning is. There's really one huge concept that, that pops off of this passage. We're going to look at the second half of John chapter 12. And it's, it's not just a big idea here in this passage. This is a huge concept to just who Jesus was, is, and what he was all about and what he taught. And here's, here's the big idea, that living for God requires dying to self. That's the big principle that, that jumps off the page as we're going to move forward. As we talk about this, I'll show you, and I think you'll see this as we go along, that Jesus goes first in this. Jesus comes to us on a mission of love to rescue people from prison, and the moment of human history was, was, was upon him, why he was here. title of this morning is The Hour Has Come. Basically, it's game time. It's like all this preparation, all this talk, all this stuff going on. Hey, it's here, and we're going to see that. Not only does Jesus go first in this, but followers go after. I know that sounds really simple, but you're going to see that in Scripture, that followers of Jesus, disciples, Christians, go after Jesus. They don't lead the way in it. They follow in his footsteps. It's talking about the cost of discipleship, what it means to be a real Christian, what it means to be a real follower of Christ. In the midst of all this, we're going to see once again Jesus just revealing himself as oneness with the Father. Look at me. If you're not there already, turn to John chapter 12, and we're just going to read uh, verses 20 through 30 right now. And uh, you can just kind of follow along as I read it, and, um, and this is what it says. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. All the people are coming to Jerusalem for Passover. And so that's what the feast is talking about right here. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, 
when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now, John makes a specific point here of bringing up the Greeks in this early part of this, of this passage here. And um, Greeks meaning really Gentiles. It was, a, it was non-Jewish, basically. And these were people who were coming and God-fearing people and, and coming to, to Passover. And what's kind of curious about that is that Jesus' reply is really kind of to a crowd of people. And he never necessarily gives them an audience. So you wonder, why does he bring them up? Most commentators believe that the reason he inserts this, the reason he makes a point of saying it, is that it's almost like this is a, a, a trigger kind of event, that Greeks are now coming to seek a Jewish Messiah, signals this fact that Jesus came to the people of Israel. Remember that? He came to the household of Israel, and periodically through the gospel, he says, I have come to do my work amongst the people of Israel. But as God foreordained, the people of Israel would reject the Messiah, and that would actually open up the doors for Gentiles. And so the scope of salvation is for all men. John comments at the end of this that, um, that this was to show what kind of death he was going to say. And, and Jesus said, when I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw all men to me. That doesn't mean every last person saved. It means people from every nation and tribe and socioeconomic background are going to come and be saved and be grafted into this vine and to the family of God. All of that to say that Jesus' scope for his rescue wasn't just the, the Jews, but with the Jews' rejection, it opens up to a, to a wider audience. For the very first time, we have this idea of the hour being present tense. Remember as we've gone along here, uh, I just started to track it this week, how many times he says what? My hour has not yet come. And he keeps saying that. At the very first miracle that he does, mom comes and says, do whatever Jesus wants, because the bridegroom kind of didn't plan ahead like a lot of guys and uh, ran out of wine. And Jesus, Jesus says, woman, what, is, what does this have to do with me? And he says, my hour has not yet come. And all along through the Gospels, he goes and he hides himself. He'll really rile up the Pharisees, then he'll go hide himself because his hour had not yet come. Overlay that with this passage from Romans 5.6. Romans 5.6 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time. Here's what I want you to get from this. Jesus' hour coming and him saying now, hey, the hour's come. Remember all these times I've been kind of foreshadowing, the hour's not yet come, the hour's not yet come. It's here. Here's the big deal of that. As you read the Gospels, as we celebrate Easter, as we approach Passion Week and all of this stuff, realize this is God's sovereign plan unfolding before your very eyes. This isn't the way we would handle it. The way we would handle it is people have actions to us, around us, and we react to them. And all that I ever can do is go through my Monday morning and act and react. I can make my plans, right? but I'm not in control of my destiny this next week. I have all kinds of plans for next week. <clears throat> Jesus didn't just meander through this, you know, rapids like, here we go, I think something's coming up. He, he is a part of God's unfolding plan. And we're going to see this as we, as we move along. There's so much prophecy that surrounds Jesus' birth 
And it's just miraculous to sit there and go, which one of you got to pick where you were born, how you were born, the name, the circumstances, the governors, who was around when you were born? None of you did. None of you orchestrated any of that. And you could even make a case and say, well, Jesus just knew the Old Testament and he tried. This is a a logic that went about this far uh, and it's been tried several times. But it says Jesus knew the Old Testament prophecy and just aligned his life to set up his death the way that it lined up with Scripture and prophecy. Because it's there. You can't get around it. You have to have an answer for it. The problem with that is he details and the prophecy details things that are out of his control. He would, have to, he would have to manipulate wide, vast numbers of people. The fact that people are cheering him on his arrival into Jerusalem, prophecy. It's all prophesied. And he didn't orchestrate that. It was just there. There's a key term I want you to know, and I've got it in your notes there. It's the term glory. Now, the term glory to some of you uh, just as a church word, and we know, what, what does glory mean? We know what glory means. And maybe in your head, it's, you know, glory! You know, and you just go, I don't know, but people shout it a lot, and, and they smile, and they raise your hand when you say glory. Sometimes people outside the church go, yeah, it's just one of those religious words. I don't know, people shout it a lot. Let me just give you a really simple definition, because as we go through this passage, but really as you go through the scriptures, you have to know what this word means. Here's very simply what it means. To be seen as one really is. Glory is to be seen as one really is. Okay? So just remember that as we go through this. I said that Jesus went first in this whole idea of of the idea that living for God requires dying to self. And Jesus is telling us he's going to die. That's what he's doing in in this passage. He's predicting his own death. Now what's interesting is... Um, as we read the story, because we know the end of it and all of that, it comes off as, well, he's, he's you know, saying this, but think about this if you were in present time with him. It hadn't happened yet. You don't know the end of it. This is a prediction. This is a prophecy, really, saying this is what's going to happen. It's Joe Namath saying we are going to win the Super Bowl. What, what, what does that cause? It causes people to say, how do you know? Because it hasn't happened yet. There's no assurance that that's really going to to, to, to go on. With Jesus predicting this, I think we can sometimes miss a sign there. Do you see how that's a miraculous sign? Things come off exactly as he says. And the way the gospel writers write is they'll often write with commentary after the fact. And John has inserted already several times where he says, after Jesus was glorified, the disciples understood what this meant. But in real time, in present time, they didn't kind of catch it. Verse 24, look at it with me again. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it. The man who hates his life in this world will keep it. Some of your versions say, truly, truly. You know what this is? This is an emphatic gather the troops around. When Jesus says, truly, truly, it's a little bit like a coach um, I've coached a couple of my kids' soccer teams before. It's this idea. Hey, guys, bring it in. Take a knee. And coach is sitting there, and he, just, he wants you to hey, put the grass down. You know, Leave the balls alone. No wet willies right now. This is just eye contact. I want you guys to catch this. And because it's game time, Jesus is saying emphatically, truly, truly, I say to you, listen to this. 
And then he gives you this teaching. Here's why we know this teaching is really important. This wasn't the only time he said it. I'm sure that the disciples who've now been with him for about three years have heard this. In fact, the other gospel writers record this. This is how important this is. Matthew 10, 39, Jesus said this, Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16 and Mark 8 record this, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Luke 9, 24 For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will save it. Luke 17, 33. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. Do you guys see the same thing? Just a drumbeat in Jesus' message and core to who he is. You want the kingdom of God? You've got to die to yourself. You want to find eternal life? Don't try to cling to this one. I mean, he's just saying that over and over. And here at this critical juncture in the story where he says, my hour has come, and the very next words out of his mouth are talking about the cross and about his death. Jesus goes first in this. He was no exception to this. He didn't say, you guys are going to have to let go of this life. Fortunately, I'm the son of God, so I have a free pass on this one. No, instead, he's the leader. You know what leaders do? They go first in something. He's going to go and do this. He's going to let go of this life and he's going to ask his followers to follow. Jesus knew that to participate in the kingdom, he had to give up his hold on this life. Look at verse 27. Verse 27 says, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. John doesn't record the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is praying and sweating drops of blood. But this is his Gethsemane moment in the Gospel of John. You know from the other synoptic Gospels, they all paint this picture of Jesus and the real struggle that he went through. This wasn't just robotic cakewalk like, yeah, by the way, I'm going to get hurt a little bit. Jesus knows as he's walking into the city, man, these palm branches, these are all checking off just next mile marker of what's coming ahead. And what's ahead is horrific and painful and shameful. There's betrayal ahead. There's physical torment ahead. There's all kinds of stuff ahead. And Jesus knows this, and he's struggling with it. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, and yet without sin. Jesus goes first. He says, you want to lay hold of the kingdom of God, you've got to let go of your hold here. And it's going to hurt, and it's going to be costly. And you're going to have Garden of Gethsemane moments where you're facing a crisis of belief. And you go, okay, God, I'm hanging on to both right here. I'm trusting you on this. I don't want to let go, but your will be done. And you grab on with both hands. And we see this in the obedient son. He's the obedient son, not without cost. Again, not pre-programmed robot. He's making a choice here, and it's costing him. And he makes the right choice. If I'm a dad here this morning, which I am, there's an essence of being a family priest. 
and, an, and a, a charge on you biblically that you're the leader in that home. Dads, go first. Go first in the things that you're wanting and desiring for your wife to grow in. Go first in the things that you're wanting to instill in your children. I don't care if they're young children or adult children. Don't give up that role. It changes when they leave the house and grow old, but you're still dad. Be a leader and go first in those things. Don't just say the words and say, now you guys go and do that. I could never really pull that off, but good luck. How about for community group leaders? Community group leaders at Neighborhood Bible Church aren't just assigned by someone who's willing to do it. We want them to be shepherds. We want you leading people. We want you processing this. How about elders and leaders in the church? Leaders go first. That's what Jesus modeled for us. Jesus knew what it was to be tempted by the temporary. You know what he did? Look at his action. He fought it. He didn't give in to it. He didn't ignore it. He had, he had a resolution. He fixed his gaze on the eternal. And he said, God, if there's any other way, please. But not my will. Your will be done. I know why I'm here. This is the hour I'm here. Let's do this. And he's going to follow. He's going to follow and be obedient to death. Jesus' death paves the way, uh, but it doesn't buy us a reward in this life and the next. In other words, the fact that he went and, and died on the cross gives us opportunity to be in fellowship with the Father, but it doesn't mean that we now have a free pass to hold on to this world and the next somehow. Jesus went first to model for us what it looks like to die to self and live for God. But he also went first, catch this, to empower us to be able to do that. The victory of Jesus on the cross ensures you have the ability to die to self and live for God. None of us on our own muster and determination and type A personality can just grab life by the horns and I'm just going to... I'm just going to get this done. You'll fail at that. We don't have the power to do that. Jesus gives us the powers. So followers go after. This is the logo of our middle school ministry. And I love this name for our group, the following. Because it's a group of students who are saying, we're all about following Jesus. No matter where it leads us, no matter how long, it's for eternity. And to follow Jesus, it requires us not leading the way ourselves. To follow Jesus means we're going to ignore the voices elsewhere that are, that are beckoning us off the path. Followers go after. Pretty simple, right? Followers go after the leader. That's how it goes. We are called to walk in the same path that Christ walked. Look at verse 26 with me. Verse 26 says, quite simply, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Following Jesus isn't just about our affection. It also includes our direction. That means that coming on Sunday morning, getting whipped up into a frenzy and just getting super excited about God type things, isn't, doesn't have anything to do with discipleship of Jesus Christ. That's not it. All that is is religion. And all that does is it leads you down a path that ends in death. And some people are going to be really shocked to go, I went to church every single week and several midweek things and certainly revivals. I got really excited about you. 
But maybe you could liken their path more to the crowd at the triumphal entry than to the disciples whose utter direction in life was altered. They left their nets. That's like leaving your cubicle to go follow Jesus. We got to meet with a couple that we're considering supporting as, a, as missionaries on Monday night, the Nemec's house. And I tell you what, I've spent a lot of time just in my own personal walk reading great people of the faith, men and women who've left everything in this world and just followed Jesus. I told you the story last week about my friend Jeff. I could tell you all kinds of people. I was down at San Jose Christian College last week where it used to sit and it's now some condos. And I just sat there and I thought through different names of people and thinking about, man, this girl got married and now she's in the very far western part of China ministering to the Uyghur people group. I mean, she's just chucked it all. She had everything in this life handed to her. And like Moses, she says, no, I'm not going to go that route. Give me Jesus. Everything else just doesn't matter. Whoever serves me must follow me. The crowds, as Jesus entered Jerusalem, gave some affection, but their direction in life wasn't changed. You know where the direction remained? It remained on their self. It remained serving themselves. And when their self wasn't served by this person, Jesus, they turned on him, right? Because their God was under attack now. You're not going to help me, and I'm God. I'm going to go after you. You're a disappointment to me. So what does it look like to follow Christ in dying to self? Let me just show you a couple of scriptures. Anyone know 1 Peter 1.14? Anyone know that verse? All right. It's our memory verse this week. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, here it is. So be holy in all you do. You know what part of what following Jesus looks like? It's right there. Being holy in all you do. Let me overlay that with 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do you see what following Jesus involves? Affection, yes. Heartfelt affection, absolutely. That ought to be a normal part of any relationship, right? But also a total change in direction. Being holy in all you do, in all you do, glorifying God. Remember what glory means? To be seen as one really is. That means today, as you walk out these doors, and tomorrow as you go through life, you begin to think and you say, what is it in this activity can show God for who He really is? People who hear this for the first time say, man, that sounds really narrow. That sounds super inclusive, constricting, elitist. I would say to that, yeah, it does sound like all those things. But on the positive end of things, I would say it also sounds really focused, simple, passionate, and eternal. It's the full life. I'm not going to give you specifics here because we're not going to have time to break this down, but let me just give you two questions that I think will help guide this. I've got a... I've got a great thing that's in one of my Bibles I got in high school. It just said questions for life's gray areas. And it's about seven or eight scripture verses that help you kind of distinguish, is this something I should be doing or not? Is this an activity I should be involved in? Is this a relationship I should be involved in? 
Let me give you a bad question. A bad question is this. What's wrong with this? Okay? You go, you go decide you're going to go out on a date with your wife. You decide to go catch a movie. A bad question is, what's wrong with this movie? You're in a relationship. You're starting to move forward. You decide you better stop and check in with God. Hopefully early on. And you say, what's wrong with this relationship? Is there anything wrong with this relationship? Here's why I would say that asking those questions with regard to food, movie, activity, relationships, a purchase you're about to make is this. I think that what that question does is it feeds kind of a do and don't religious system. It's just kind of an ethics system based on kind of do's and don'ts. And I think you could get real easily swayed into human philosophies and current thoughts and trends mixed in with a little bit of Bible verse sprinkled in here and there. I think it's ethics-focused and behavior-centric. In other words, it talks about symptomatic kinds of things instead of kind of heart issues. If you look hard enough, you realize that question itself is a little bit distant from God, isn't it? Instead of wanting to live above reproach and as far away from anything that would repulse God, you're going, what's around the corner? Is there anything wrong with this? Am I pushing any kind of limit here? Two more things. It's negative and it's unbiblical. So I think that's a bad question. Here's a better question. How will this help me treasure Christ more? Kind of an odd question. Probably we don't phrase it quite that way. I was reading from John Piper's excellent book called Don't Waste Your Life. In fact, I think our Friday morning men's group may go through that next. I remember going through this with a couple of college students. And he phrases this question exactly that way. How will this help me treasure Christ more? You know why I like that question? As it points to our point in life. Our point in life is glorifying God. Showing God for who He is. Instead of being ethics focused, it's relationship focused. Behaviors flow from a deep love and respect from Christ. Instead of being negative, it's positive, And I think it's a much more biblical kind of question. The reality is that to be holy is to be set apart. It's to be basically weird. And I think about office workers... An office worker who takes a coffee break and, and uses that opportunity, that chance to speak off about the glories of God, not in some preachy, weird way, but you just get a sense as that person talks, man, they value their relationship with God more than their new car they bought. And they keep talking about that, that, that purchase that they made as if it's somehow a tool. It always comes back to this whole God thing, this missionary they keep sacrificing for. Why don't they just put a pool in for Pete's sake or whatever it is? And office workers just who are like that are a little bit weird. You don't have to come off as obnoxious and preachy, but it's strange. How about students? You ask students why they're working so hard at school. Why are you working your tail off? Why are you staying up late nights? You know what the common answer is? When you really get down to it, I want a good-paying job. That degree ensures me a better chance at a good-paying job. What if the how and why of why a student's working their tail off is totally different from that? And it reveals kind of a value system that's just turned on its head. What if the real reason someone, and you just saw it in their eyes as you talked to them, the reason they're working their tail off to study is because they want to help people in India one day. And their dream is to be a missionary. And if they can get in as a doctor, their, their, their pass in is just so much easier. That's wacky. That's different. I think about moms who humbly serve God by a thousand times a day doing humble servant's work. 
And year after year of that going on, the countenance of that mom just shows off to the kids, man, there's a God that's really like that. You must value something in another life way more than this life. You could go on and on with this, thinking about how this plays out in real, in real life. Let me give you a couple of quick snapshots of what some wasted lives are like. Look at John 37. We're going to skip down a little bit. The crowds typically misunderstand him. And going down to verse 37, he says this. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. He goes on to point out that this too was prophesied. This too plays into really the sovereign plan of God. But let me tell you one way to to waste your life. It's to ignore the activity and word of God. You just ignore the activity and word of God. All these signs and miracles went on and they still didn't believe. Some people go after this life for the party. They just want to go for the party and say, man, I can't wait for the next party. Whatever, however that plays out. As you get older, the party looks like golf and, you know, some more subdued, you know, bowling league. I mean, just some, some weird stuff, not quite as dramatic and exciting as what they show on TV. But people just constantly living for the next thrill. What's going what's gonna to please me? What's going to take my mind off stuff? Whatever it is. That's one kind of wasted life, ignoring God's word and activity. Here's another kind of wasted life that I think is much more acceptable in the church. It's to build up the family unit, get into a gated community, potentially get a white picket fence, have a good ethical thing going on in the home, have peace at home, have some really good vacations, keep your kids in a pretty safe environment, and kind of live the good life, meaning morally good, till hopefully the rapture comes and off you go. The reason I think that's a wasted life is because that takes, that takes zero amount of God in there. You're not following Jesus anywhere. You're, you're, you're attracted to some of the side benefits of, of a people knowing God. And it can get confusing thinking that, wow, they're good church people. Where really, it may or may not require God's Holy Spirit there. Mark 8.36 Jesus spoke to this. He says, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Come judgment day, you'll look at that party life and go, man, I I wasted it. I wish I had paid attention to God's activity in his word. I didn't heed one ounce of it. Come judgment day, a lot of people will say, Lord, Lord, we did all kinds of great stuff. We were involved in all kinds of boutiques and potlucks. We weeded at the church every month. I mean, we really worked our tail off for you. They'll go, I have no idea who you are. It wasn't my work you were involved in. That was part of the homeowners association rules or whatever else. So you can gain this whole life and forfeit your soul. That's a wasted life. Look at verse 42. Verse 42 says, Yet at the same time, Many, even among the leaders, believed in him. So far, so good. But, uh uh-oh, because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. Listen to John's commentary on them here. For they love the praise of men more than praise from God. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So another way of wasting your life is believing but not following. See how critical following is in all of this? That leads to religion 
or not acting on what you know is true. You know what not acting on what you know is true is called? It's called hypocrisy. And you can have a real religious tint to that or a real atheistic, agnostic tint to that. But either way, it's hypocrisy. Man, I know there's a God, but I don't want to account for him. So I'm going to live as, as an atheist and go around promoting my agenda because that way I get to be king. That's a lot more fun. In the end, here's what Jesus would say to that. One verse after we just read in Mark, Mark 8. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes into his Father's glory with the angels. Jesus leads us in how not to live a wasted life. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. I want you to think about this in regard to your own life. I want you to listen to these verses for a moment. 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, Paul says it this way, For I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Do you hear the singular focus of Paul's life? He says it a different way to the Galatians. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. One more, he says, but whatever was to my profit, this is in Philippians 3, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. This is the message Jesus is preaching to the church today. I think Paul, if he were to come and write us a letter, he would say some of these same things to us in this room. Profit and loss. What are we boasting in? What are we claiming to know? What are we pursuing to know? Once you find a cause worth sacrificing for, everything else in life comes into alignment. Jesus said it this way. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. All the other stuff has a way of taking care of of itself. Why celebrate such a horrible event? That's what we're about to do. We're about to celebrate a bloody, painful, grotesque death of a man on a cross. One of the most shameful, disgusting ways of, of putting a person to death, capital punishment. Here's why. Because this seeming defeat is our only means of victory. That's it. That's why Paul could say, I boast of nothing except for the fact that God lets me in because of the cross. Because this death was no accident, but this was all part of God's plan for rescue. Because in the cross, we see love beyond words from Jesus. Way more than just speaking, he shows and puts on full display his immense love for us. We're going to sing about this, but because the wounds of Jesus mean healing for us all. And finally, because the death of Jesus opens up for us eternal life. I want to invite the band up right now and let you know how we're going to celebrate communion this morning. In just a few moments, we're going to dim the house lights. We're going to dim the stage lights. And I want you just to... Kind of enjoy the ambiance of the room. Typically, we do communion kind of in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's cafeteria style where we come up and we kind of serve ourselves. 
Sometimes it's, uh, I don't know, TV dinner style where we pass it to you individually and you're taking it kind of at your chair. This morning what we're going to do is we're going to have table seatings. And about six of you at a time are going to come up and share around this table. And I'm going to lead at one table and Kel's going to lead at the other table. What I ask you to do is just have every single person come center aisle and just filter in. And when six fill up, just, just wait patiently and you can just stand and we're going we're gonna to lead this six around a table. I want you to enjoy the visual of an elongated table with kind of a close, intimate group of people. Jesus leading his disciples. It wasn't passing silver trays with, with his disciples sitting all facing in rows. I guarantee you that. So enjoy the, the visual of that. Think about the fact that Christians worldwide are following Jesus' commands to do what we're celebrating here and remembering his death, his burial, his resurrection in this physical act of communion. You're joining in with brothers and sisters who right now are in house churches, potentially fearful of what tomorrow brings with regard to their life. Because they've said, you can have the world. Give me Jesus. Ben, if you just kind of start to lead in softly, I want to read for you as we close Philippians 2. Philippians 2 provides some commentary on what Jesus is talking about. It's a familiar passage, but I want you to think about this overlaid on the events of what Jesus just said here. Philippians 2.6 says this, Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father showing off what God's really all about showing off who he is you know what verse 5 says to start off that whole passage Jesus goes first his followers go after verse 5 says this have this attitude I mean it says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus So right now, we're going to dim the lights. I'm going to take my place over here. Kel, come on up. Uh, When you're ready, you can still take communion with your family, little pods of people. You're going to possibly share communion with people you don't know, and that's great. So music's going to be playing softly. We're going to just lead you in a a time of communion over here. The The way that you need to take it is come and stand right front and center. And we'll just kind of pull you in about six at a time or so. So when you're ready, come on up and we will uh, share communion together. Thanks, church. That was just a great way to celebrate together and uh, be able to be close. And uh, let's just have our prayer be that we walk out of here and we boast and we know the cross of Christ. And, uh, And that we return next week and tell each other about it and how it's going and encourage one another.
Uh, next Sunday is a little bit different in that we're going to have uh, kind of a vision rollout Sunday. There's some certain kind of state of the church kinds of things. We're going to let you know about some budget decisions that we have. But really it's direction and vision and we're super excited about it. Uh, a couple weeks ago the elders just spent some time um, really just being together and seeking the Lord. And, and a lot of stuff that's been cooking for months and months now. We're just super excited to, to share with you all. So um, look forward to seeing you back uh, next week. We won't be in John um, there is still uh, memory verses and community group questions for, for you. So uh, you're dismissed. Uh, go thank your children's workers, and we'll see you next Sunday.